Hi, my name is Isabella Johnston, and I am the Intern Whisperer. Today's tip of the week is about DEI culture activities. You don't want to guess, you want to measure impact. So one way you can do this is conduct anonymous company surveys to learn how your employees feel about diversity, inclusion, and company culture. Repeat the survey regularly to see if you're making progress and set goals for everyone to see. And you want to make sure that you'd like this to be within 12 months or maybe even further in the future. You should also use customer research to learn more about your hiring needs. If your customers represent certain demographics, it would be helpful to have that relatable expertise on your team. Make it public. Make sure the people inside of your company know this, as well as the people outside looking for jobs with your company. Be accountable for the goals you set. Setting check-in dates makes it a priority and prevents the initiative from getting swept under the rug if you're less than pleased with the results. So today's guest is Barry Nadler. He is a learning performance consultant with FIS, and he'll tell us what that is, and a seasoned instructional designer, media producer, technical writer with over 20 years of training experience. He has worked across many industries, which includes television, banking, publishing, enterprise-level software, and e-commerce. Welcome, Barry, to The Intern Whisper. Hi, thanks. Glad to be here. Oh, you and I go way back. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. I don't know. You'll probably remember the year. I don't. I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure we've known each other at least 10 years. Yeah. So that would be like 2013, 2014, something like that. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's when I met Rosa, too. I have a feeling it was a little bit earlier than that. But was it during that ID boot camp? Yeah. Yeah, that would probably be 2014 or so. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Well, our show is always about education, innovation, and future of industries and jobs, but I always start off my show with asking my guests, tell us five words that describe you, but you and I did this in practice before. We did. And we came up with, well, I gave you two extra words. (laughs) Yeah, we did. Phrases. Mm -hmm. All right, but you kick us off. What's the first one? So the first one is a two word. Yeah. It's positive deviant. Okay. Why that word? So I heard that term a while back from somebody else in the field. And I said, that really describes me because I'm not a problem child in that sense. I'm not the troublemaker, but I'm a risk taker. And I'm the one that's not afraid to jump off the cliff and experiment with things and try new things. And I don't do it for fun, even though it is fun. Mm -hmm. I do it to make things better. Mm. So in the process, I'm breaking old things to make new things. So I'm I'm a deviant in that nature, but it's for positive reasons. So, I so like it's that. positive deviant. Yeah. Well, you touched on the second one because you said experiment, you like to experiment I do. and experimental is key to doing that. Absolutely. And that's how I got my career where it was well, by experimentation and self-teaching. And I guess we're going to get to that. We are. So I like to mess around. I like to try things out. I like to see what happens and I like to, you know, just kind of break things and, and, but always for something new. And so I'm the first guy usually that gets, when I was, when I was in the um, client facing training world, I was the guy that would jump off the cliff, try new things, try new technologies, new ideas, that kind of stuff. And as I'm over the cliff, I would hope to God 
that there was a branch somewhere along the way. And sometimes it would be a branch and other times splat. I would be Wiley Coyote on the ground. <laughs> I can see that. But I, I didn't mind it. And that was part of what made it magical. Is I, I just, I knew that if I try enough things, eventually we hit good things. So your third word was social. Yes. So why social? So I am a social being just by the nature of it. I get my batteries charged by other people. I like being around people. I, I feed off of that. And so I, I notice a change in my disposition when I'm, when I'm not around people for a while. I, I, it, it's part of my, just part of like, it's like air for me. I have to have it. I'm the guy that's going to go sit at the food court and and eat and not talk to anybody but i know that there's activity happening around me and there's people i will go and you know if i'm traveling i will go find a barnes and noble and just sit in the barnes and noble and even if i'm just paging through a magazine or flipping through a book or something or working on my laptop i've got people around me it's just part of who i am so learner i think that learning is an ongoing thing and i've kind of built my career that way in that i'm constantly learning new things. There was a period of time in my career where I would go to lunch every day by myself, like I said, to like the food court or something, but I would take a book and whatever that book might be, it was most likely a nonfiction book, a business book or something or a creativity book or something. And I'd read maybe 10 pages while I was eating lunch. And over the course of a year, I would read five or six books. And it just became, because I was doing that and other people weren't, my career grew because of it. And that's how I became the experimenter. I would go to the conferences and the expos, and I was very active with the ATD chapter and Association for Talent and Development. And because I was just constantly having inputs, there was always something to work with. When I needed a creativity boost, I could always reach into the back pocket and pull something out because it was always there. And so it served me well. Yeah, I'd say so. Facilitator of knowledge. I have something in me and I don't know what it is. I've yet to figure this piece out, but I, it may be tied to that social element, but I thrive on sharing. I am the guy that will share when I learn stuff. I don't hoard it. I'm not a hoarder of knowledge. I, I share my knowledge where I can with whoever I can. And I like to bring people along and, you know, I, I, I just, I share, I find it valuable because I know that in the end, other people are better off because I don't hoard and I share. So I am a, I am a facilitator of knowledge and I don't mind standing up in front of groups of people and speaking. That doesn't scare me. Some people ter it terrifies them to death. A lot of times when I do a presentation, I don't even practice. Mm. I'll go through it a couple of times. I'll look at it, make sure that I kind of know it. I'm like, I know it. It, it. As long as I got that there to prompt me, I'm, I'm good. I don't need to practice. I don't need to stand in front of the mirror and do it over and over again. And it makes me more authentic. Actually. I've had people tell me that I'm very authentic agreed. when I speak. Yeah. Agreed. Um, this is the other bonus word for our listeners. Consistent. I would say that I'm consistent. I used to have a, a thing when I was younger that I used to say, the only thing that I have is my word. And that if I said I was going to do something, it might take me 10 years to do it, but I was going to do it. And if I told you I was going to do something, you could bet money on the fact that I would do it eventually, whatever that was. Sometimes it was fast. Sometimes it was slow, but, but it was, it was a consistency that I needed. I needed that, you know, that's that. And I still believe that today. I mean, I tell my kids that, that that's the thing you have is your word. 
It's true. Mm -hmm. So share what your education background is. How did you go from that launching point to where you are now? So there's a long story. So buckle up a little bit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I went, I went to school. So uh, let's look even back before that. So I was one of those kids that came out of the 19, the late seventies into the early eighties. And I was a star Wars kid. Hmm. So I saw star Wars when I was seven years old in the theater and my life literally changed. It was one of those things that you see something and you go, the world has shifted and moved and I now have to, to follow this. And I'm not the only one. I mean, there's tons of people that grew up in that time period that that movie impacted their lives. And it drove me towards art and creativity and movies and things of that nature. And then when I was in high school, I didn't really know where I was going to go. And I ended up into the taking like a film production class when I was a junior and I loved it. I was like, Oh, that's the thing. So I happened to be in Orlando, which at that time was going to be Hollywood East. We had Universal Studios, we had Nickelodeon, we had the Disney Studios opening up, all of that was coming here. So it made perfect sense to go to UCF, the University of Central Florida, and go after a film major, a radio television major. And what, the, what I didn't pick up on was the fact that that career doesn't pay well that the only people that get paid are the people that sit behind the desk on the news stations or that are in the movies, the film, the people that actually work on those movies, they make day rates there. You know, it's not like you go out and apply for a job and you get a job and then you sit at the job for a bunch of years. It's you go work on this thing and it might be a week to two weeks. And then you go work on another thing for another couple of weeks or a month or whatever, unless you're doing Lord of the Rings, that's like a three-year project. <laughs> but, but generally it was a freelance environment. And I was not able to really function in that environment. And then the jobs that I did get when I was working at the news stations became um, hourly pay for like, at that time, it was like five bucks an hour, nine bucks an hour. And I really struggled for many years doing that. And I eventually, because I was in Orlando, the world of the convention industry, I ended up in the audiovisual world. So if you think about a roadie for a concert, I was a roadie for businesses. So I would set up the screens, I would set up the projectors and the slides and the slide machines and the microphones and speakers and lighting and all that stuff. And I would run the cameras and things because that was my background. <clears throat> I did have one fortuitous thing that happened that impacted things down the road. And I don't know that I've ever shared this with you. So at the time, film editing was the normal, right? They would have the strip of film and they would cut it with the, with the razor blade. And then they would put new pieces together and that's how they would do editing. So there was this newfangled thing called nonlinear editing that was coming out. And I went and I actually learned about nonlinear editing and how that worked. And it's what we now know in the computer as regular video editing and the digital editing that got that, I guess it was Pixar and Lucasfilm and those guys figured out how to do that. But, but that skill taught me how to understand timelines and that skill didn't get used for a while, but it, it did come back around. So after I realized that, that I wasn't going to be able to make my life work in that environment, I had to refine myself. And at that point, I didn't know anything about training. I didn't know about technical writing or any of that kind of stuff. The only thing I kind of knew about was like graphic design. And um, I knew about, 
what was the other thing I knew about? There was another thing that that I kind of was aware PowerPoint? of. PowerPoint? No, no, not yet. PowerPoint wasn't a thing yet. Mm. This was like 1993. Okay. So PowerPoint didn't hit, Microsoft Office didn't hit until Windows 95. So I kind of had to figure out desktop publishing was the other thing. <clears throat> so I ended up getting lots of like contract jobs where I would work for a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks there, trying to just find myself and figure out what kind of companies were out there and what I could do. And they always ended up being media driven or visual design driven or something along those nature. And at some point I went and I took a job with AAA. I was probably doing data entry at the time. And a buddy of mine from college was working there and he was in the training, he was training. And so one day I asked him what, what it is that he was doing. And he explained it to me and I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And I took that and stuck it in my back pocket. Didn't do anything with it for a while. I got a contract job with a company that created training courses for people learning Microsoft Office and that the basic basics, they would teach them at like Office Max and Office Depot, you know, entry-level business type stuff where they were learning how to use the software to do different things. And this was, I was, I was hired to redesign the manuals, the training guides. So it was a desktop publishing job. But at various points in time, they would come in and they would say, hey, can you do a course on like Yahoo, searching on Yahoo for things? Remember, this is before Google was a thing. Um, so they, I, would, I would have to go create a course and I didn't know what I was doing. So I had a model, which was the dummies books because the dummies books were very popular. They had just kind of hit the market at that time. And so I would say, well, the, the dummies books work. So I'll just follow the model of the dummies books and I'll create training guides like that. And, and that's how I'll make a new thing. So that happened multiple times. And, and I was tasked with like esoteric things inside of Excel and Word and PowerPoint. And so my skills of being self-taught finally came back around here. And I realized that I was really getting skilled at this stuff. And that's when I found out that, that, that there was actually a career there called the technical writer. And so I was like, okay, now I have a path. And I eventually took a job as a technical writer for, um, for another company that did giant enterprise-wide database systems and networking and things like that. So I, I came in there and I got to be their, their expert on creating templates and things of that nature and presentations and guides and whatever. But again, it was the training department. I was in the training department doing that for them. And somewhere along the line, they said, hey, we want to make computer-based training. And I said, pick me because I'm that experimenter. You know, I, I was like, that's, that's cool. I want to do that. That's, in, that's innovative. And at that time, it was on a CD-ROM. It was inside of a browser. And it was basically a picture, some text, and an X button. And then a picture and text and an X, and an X button. So I got to like produce these, be the producer, because I had a graphic artist. So all I had to do was tell him, what I wanted the picture to look like. He would make me a really nice picture and then I would write the text and we would build this thing. And from there, I ended up at a company called Harris Publishing. Harris Publishing is the original version of Harris Corporation. Mm. So Harris Corporation is in Melbourne, Florida. They do you know, satellite stuff and missiles and all kinds of communication things. Harris Publishing works with the news industry. So again, back to the media, 
so they do newspapers and they do um, websites. So what was what it was, was it was a database system where they would put the stories in and that story would then get put onto the news page in a, in a page layout, so page design and a website. And then they would constantly publish it. So I was one of the few people that worked on the website. So I learned about networking and I learned how to talk to developers because this was a program that was being developed. And again, this became, there was a tool called Authorware that was coming out, Macromedia Authorware. I had a book that was probably five inches thick on how to learn this thing. And I'm like, if I learn this, this is interactive media. This is like flash-based. So I knew that I, again, we're back to the storytelling. These things keep coming back around. And I had clients that were all over the place. So I would travel, but other times they were like, Hey, can you just do this over the phone? Can you, you know, share a screen before we had real WebEx and things like that? Can you do like a share a screen and teach people over the phone? And I'm like, I think so. And I figured out how to do that. So eventually that became part of the training thing. And from there, I ended up at Metavante, which is now FIS. And after about three months, this is where things really took the spin. They, they put me on a thing that we called web conferences. They did not have a training department at this company. This is a banking software company that would train bankers out in the field that worked at banks on banking, the banking software that runs their bank. And they said, we need you to create new episodes that are going to run like once a week or so. And you're going to broadcast them out. So basically they gave me a pirate radio station for bankers. And all I had to do was go talk to the client support folks, figure out what the topics were that needed help. And then I would then create pre-recorded events. So self-paced learning that we would broadcast over the phone and over like WebEx. And so I would come on live. I would do the little intro piece and then I would hit play. And it would play for a little while. And then we'd have a little quiz that would come up that I would do live. And then I would play the next piece. And then we'd do a quiz. And then I'd play the next piece and I'd close out live. And we eventually figured out we could record these and put them on CDs. And over that period of time, they eventually developed a training group that would go out and train at the banks and stuff. But, but that was how this all started. And I eventually became an integral part of the training group. And then into, I left to go work for an e-commerce company because I was fascinated wanting to start my own, my own business around selling things online. Turns out the guy that I worked for was the producer for the Blair Witch, who I knew from when I was at UCF. So it, it all kind of comes around. And eventually I figured out it was all storytelling. It's the storytelling and the experiments and the, the wanting to be big and splashy like Star Wars. And it, it all kind of fed itself. And here I am. There you are. Yeah. That's a really good story too, because it does connect all of the dots. I enjoyed that. I did not know all yes, of that. I am an accidental instructional designer. Training found me. Mm. And that's, that's really cool too. I'm going to use that in my description of the show. So you, you actually answered why you chose adult learning and it chose you. But let's talk about what it takes to skill adults, because it's not the same as teaching little it's kids. It's not. It's very much not. And that was so as as you heard in my story, I was not even close to formally trained in education. I kind of found it right. It, it just kind of landed in my lap and OK, now I got to figure this out. 
So there was a period of time where I was unemployed because there was a riff in the company. I've worked for Metavante, which is FIS, like four times because I came and went and came and went and came. You must, uh, they, you must have been really good though. I, yeah. They, they, yeah. And it was, it's one of those places that was like family. I mean, it felt weird to not be there. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've come and gone a couple of times, but um, one of the times that I was off of work and I was trying to figure out where I was going to land after that, I, I got a scholarship through an unemployment office, probably the same company that Rosa works with actually. The okay. career, probably that same, that same organization. Well, she's been a guest on the show and she already said that company. Yeah. So I don't remember, but I don't know that it was the same one career oh, okay. source, Yeah, but I don't know that it was career, career source. source. Then it might've been, I think it was called one stop or something. So I don't know. Oh, if it, I don't know. Anyway, point being, I got a scholarship to go to school. I lived, here's the weird thing. I lived in Volusia County and trying to find a school in Volusia County that taught instructional design was really difficult because I'd already had like five years under my belt. Right. So it was kind of like, I could just go and explain, look, I know how to do this stuff. I don't need the other things, but it felt like I needed something to say I'm certified. I'm, I'm official. You can hire me and I can actually do this thing. So I ended up at Emory riddle, which is a flight school. They, they teach like maintenance for airlines. They teach pilots, all this stuff but they had an instructional design class, an instructional design program. And it was called instructional technology. And it was, they're based out of Daytona. So they were in Volusia County. So I was able to go there and get my, get my certification, but that certification was so basic, but it taught me a little bit about how adults learn. And I think that's back to the question that we're talking about is how adults learn. So I had to figure this out, but, but it, it has to do with motivation where adults are not like kids. When you're, when you're a kid, you get taught, sat in the seat, the teacher lectures to you and you take a test and you say, here, I learned it. Adults don't do that. Adults want to solve problems. And by solving problems, they want to experiment and they want to figure things out and they want to do the research themselves. And I mean, you think about how, how do you learn things? Trial and error, mistakes. Exactly. You probably go to YouTube. You probably read articles. You go to the library and look at books you know, you don't, you don't go sign up for a course, but yet in corporate America, that's what we push. Everybody needs to go take this training course, take this training course, that training course, but nobody wants a training course. Everybody doesn't, nobody likes it. We've actually, as a, as an industry, we've ruined e-learning because the people have gotten really bored and you get people that aren't skilled in what, how to do that in the, making these presentations, but that's a different discussion. Um, but how adults learn. So they, they want to be challenged. They want to solve problems. They want to, they want to prove that they know something as opposed to being told. But what happens in, in corporate America in many places is we all have, you get all these people that are accidental instruction, instructional designers, and they follow the model of what they've been used to, what they learned in school and how, and their vision of it. And that vision is somebody standing on a stage telling other people what they know. And then hoping other people get it right. That's when they, well, I gave you the PowerPoint, you should know it. And it doesn't work that way. People have to roll things around in their head. They have to solve problems for themselves. And that's where you get the the taxonomy and, and all that. Yeah. You have to have the <clears throat> processing time. Yeah, that's for sure. The spacing that's, that's part of it, you know? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, people also learn from observation. Mm-hmm. We watch each other. Yeah. We learn from storytelling, honestly. And it's, it's amazing how important storytelling is. 
that's one of those things that um, people remember stuff. Like I was just able to rattle off my entire story. I imagine you'll probably remember it, but you probably won't remember the data that was in that story. You'll remember the, the, the points in time and, the, right. and some of the things. And so the story triggers those, the data. So if you just spout off data to people, they don't get it. You have to tie it to a story. And when that piece clicked for me, that's also when magic started happening because I realized I could drop the objectives at the beginning of a course. Nobody cares at the beginning of the course of at the end of this course, you'll, you'll learn this, 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 and this, and this. Nobody cares. Nobody remembers it. What they remember is if you put, if you drop them into a story that introduces that content mm -hmm. and they understand the problem, mm -hmm. that's when stuff sticks. And that's when they're motivated to learn because they go, oh, I have that problem too. They also remember the context of Correct. how it was given to them and the humor and yeah. just little things that made it more personal. Yep. Yeah, definitely on that side. So when we're talking about that, you had two theories. Um, one is a T-shaped professional and versus the stalactite. Thank you. Stalactite <laughs> shaped professional. What did, What do you mean by that? So I was... I was putting together a program to help transitioning teachers. We're at a period of time right now where a lot of teachers are moving away from the K through 12 space and they're coming over into the training space because they're, they feel like there's a, a transitional point there that they can fit into. And um, somewhere along the line, I heard a person who was not in the training field explain this model of a T-shaped professional. And basically it means that you have a lot of knowledge across the top, but you go deep on one skill set. And I thought that was really interesting. And I kind of, again, stuck it in the back pocket, held onto it for a little bit. And I started working on a project at, at FIS where we were talking about skills development and, and trying to figure out roles and things like that. And I said, I wonder if this model works here, the T-shaped like software developer. And the answer was, yes, it did. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if I could put that in this transitioning teacher thing and I could think about it there. If a transitioning teacher wants to be an instructional designer, they have a wide set of skills and I could help them build the deep skill to make them a T. So that, that model stuck and I kept using it over and over and over again and I was going down that path. And then we were at a conference in December, I think it was, here in Orlando. And there was a woman talking about long life learning and she throws up this diagram of a T-shaped professional. And she says, no longer is this a thing. This isn't going to work for you anymore. This is a specialist and we need people to be generalists. And people that are in the professional field need to look more like this. And she threw up this diagram that started out as a T and it started having all these lines that came off of it. And my immediate thought was vampire fangs, but... <laughs> But that wasn't the best answer. The best answer was stalactites. But I said, oh, it also looks like stalactites in a cave that hang down from the top. And I said, I'm going to start calling that the stalactite model. And so far, I'm the only one that I know of that's calling it that. Okay, so you've got a new type of um, way of identifying how people actually process and share their information is what I'm going to see that as, um, because... I'm one of those stalactites. Okay. I, I, I have a whole lot of knowledge and there is, I think I'm a combination of both though. 
most people probably are. Yeah. But I don't know that it's about processing information. I think it's about what are the things, the types of projects you can work on? What kind of solutions can you create? What kind of work can you do? And the wider your T and the more depth on the different areas means that you are a functional, more experienced, you're a more capable employee, Mm -hmm. more valuable employee to the company that you work Mm -hmm. for, because you're not just one thing, right? If that one thing changes, all of a sudden you're not valuable anymore. Mm -hmm. And so widening that, that breadth and then going deep on lots of different things. And you can tell from my story, I had lots of different areas, right? I had the video production. I had, um, presentation skills. I had self-learning. I had, I, I don't know, just, you could keep going. The experimentation piece, problem solving, mm-hmm. right? Some of those power skills were built in, in there. Yeah, I definitely see that. Um, one of the things that's really fun about all of what you just described was though, um, for people that like fun terminology, mm-hmm. you know, it makes it so it sticks out, Yeah, you know, and instead of saying, like in typical academic learning, we have different types of leadership styles, right? We have authoritative, we have also servant leadership, which is one that I like quite a bit, but we have different different leaders. Um, I think that the way that you're describing this type of learning makes it so that it'll stick with people mm-hmm. on the first time. And I think that's significant. Yeah, it is. It is very significant. And if you understand what the skills are that need to be across the top, then it becomes very easy to go, okay, I'm going to pick this one, this one, this one, and that one, and I'm going to build those down. Mm-hmm. And it allow, it gives you a path. And that's something that a lot of people don't have is they don't understand what skills are needed. And there's a lot of transferable skills from one career to another. And if you can build on those, now you can lift that T and put it, some, or that, that stalactite and put it somewhere else. And you still have the skills that will work. And then you just pick another one that you have to drive down and learn on. You don't have to learn mm-hmm. everything new. Yeah. And that's where we're kind of at. Cause, and I'm not sure where the next, what the next question is around this. Is it, is it about that, that self-learning stuff? Uh, yeah, it was uh, where we were talking about sharing content at work so that we're able to, in my opinion, um, meet all of the needs that are there for your, your workers. You had said that you have how many people at your FIS? 70,000. 70,000. And so to try and create individual customized learning plans for that many people is. It's a little difficult. It's a little hard. Yeah. That's not even including the clients. Yeah. Because remember there was an internal training team and then there's an external training team. Yeah. So we're training clients and vendors and contractors as well as all the internal employees. It's daunting. It, yeah. You're over hundred thousand, hundreds yeah. of thousands of people. So by having different ways that learning is um, shared and absorbed, I'll say absorbed is unique to each person's like a fingerprint, honestly. Yeah. Uh, to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. Because and that's me, a challenge. Yeah, it is. Because you have different abilities, you have different points of time generationally when they're born, and those technological advances, historical events, that impacts how they learn. Um, Something that was really interesting along this line that, that I saw 
is we were creating a project around skills. So we were looking at tech learners specifically. So people in the development field, people that are implementations, people that are client support that have technical skills re revolving around a product line. We, we started talking to the development team, the leaders of the development team and started saying, what skills do people need to have that you want on your team? And what I was expecting to hear was things like Java and cloud engineering and Kubernetes. To me, Docker that's knowledge. And, and well, what ended up happening is I didn't hear that at all. Mm -hmm. I heard problem solving, critical mm -hmm. thinking, um, innovation, influence, uh, collaboration, it, it, yeah. all these, these things that we're calling power skills now. Mm -hmm. That's what people are looking for. And, and to me, that's a really interesting thing because it, it triggered me to go, oh, so we are assuming that when they come out of school, they're going to have the, the programming and development skills. So we don't have to teach them that, but they may not have these other power skills that we have to bring to, they have to bring to the table. So we have to spend time teaching them how to be part of a team and how to collaborate and how to provide influence or was that exert influence, I guess is the right word. Yeah. It can it, be both. So you're on a team and you have an idea, you want that idea to make it into the final product. So you have to exert influence mm -hmm. to make sure that it's part of this. I think it's the know. opposite. I feel that people, um, because I know you said that adults learn through problem solving and all that, but children do also our education system. This is where I differ is that um, it's one directional. So in the classroom, we don't allow children, youth, you know, teenagers, the opportunity, at least in America, to be able to solve those kind of problems. It's, it's our education system is set up for scale, so to speak, and being able to deliver one directional type of information. Um, now, where you actually get to, and you have problem solving skills, because if you think as a baby that's learning to walk, they, they get up, they fall down. They get up, they fall down. How many times do they do that? It's trial and error, a lot of mistakes, but it's also something that they're figuring out the problems of getting their balance. All of those different aspects of learning how to walk has already been introduced to them as a child. Um, we don't encourage it as much in school, but everybody has those skills. So I'm going to differ with you a little bit on this. That's okay. So there's a couple of things going on. You're, you're, you're doing it so politely, Barry. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you could actually come in. No, I will not. <laughs> so you're, you're absolutely correct in, in much of what you just said, but I think we're at a shift point in the way the education system works. And it's been going for now. a couple of years. Um, we have things like Montessori school. Mm -hmm. Montessori school is very experiential, experiential exactly. Um, but there's a thing called the flipped classroom model. Have you heard of this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the flipped classroom model, for those that don't know, I guess, should I explain? Yeah, go okay. ahead. So the flipped classroom model is where they've taken the video in the lecture and they've taken that out of the classroom and you now watch the video between classes. And then when you come to class, you're doing your homework in class and you're doing experiments in class and lab work and question and answers and your problem solving and all that. And I think it's still being integrated at this point. It, it but hasn't you know gone... it wasn't when we were in school. No, when we were in school, it was It was not. the way I described yes. it. Yes, yeah. yes, I'm talking about school now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, school, yeah. And so school has changed in that sense, but we're not completely there. 
And part of the problem goes back to what I was saying is the people that are, that were there, they're you and me, we didn't go through that. Mm -hmm. So unless you have a child that's going through it and you experience it, you're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. So when you go into the work world and you're being asked to present information or share information or teach people things, you fall back on what you experienced. Yep. But, but the experiential model is something that is taking over in the school system today. But it is difficult because, again, the teachers that are in the schools may or may not have come from that. Yeah. So they're having to learn new skills. And we saw that with the pandemic, right? I mean, the schools just collapsed under the ability to even do remote classes, which that's a whole different discussion. Really I don't know if we're going to go there, but that's a whole different discussion is there's no reason that should have happened. But yeah. anyway. Well, the public classroom system is not set up for experiential learning again at scale at scale and that's where I was a public classroom teacher and I had anywhere if I was lucky 22 students in a classroom versus when they took away the web program the writing enhancement program I had 40 mm. so it doubled just like that and so I cannot produce highly opportunities high opportunities for the students to have that experiential um, learning opportunity that they truly needed. Now, I was very innovative at that time. And one of the things that I did is I implemented how I was an English teacher, how to bring economics into the classroom. So it was very, very different. And it was, they had to catch me making a mistake. They had to be seated when the bell, before the bell rang, they couldn't, I was teaching seventh grade, they couldn't touch any of their neighbors because they had to learn how to, you know, contain their bodies. These are all hard things. And I taught in the projects. So let's just add another layer of socioeconomic mm -hmm. issues on top of that learning opportunity. So, but I did, I taught adults and I saw the same things because they were products of, of one directional type of education where the lecture is going on and it's not interactive. And so one of the things I did with my adult learners is I broke them into groups and said, okay, you are responsible for teaching this. You're this chapter, this chapter, this chapter. So then they had to become more engaged with what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And I made it so that they were having to look to see, did that build on top of what the next person was doing? Yeah. One of the things that we're seeing now that's actually becoming very popular is cohort programs. Yes. And it's, it's a very similar thing. And it, it is part of this shift of the, what we call the sage on the stage versus the guide on the side. Yep. And that is a thing that we can move into corporate America, which leads into the thing that we were talking about before, before we even started here. And we talked about the subject matter experts creating their own content and their own programs and things like that, that that is how training scales. That if you can teach people how to share their knowledge, mm -hmm. that, and then you as a training professional help them package it, you don't have to learn the content because for when you're talking about 70,000 people plus the all the clients, there's no way that a single person or a group even of four or five people could, could manage that. The only way to do that is to... Um, allow the people there's a better word for, than allow um what what am i i'm looking for a word and i can't find it experience no empower that's the oh, word okay where you empower people in the business 
to create their own content. Hmm. And by creating their own content and then giving it to us to package, we can scale because we don't ever have to learn the content. We just have to be able to understand what it is they've provided us. Mm -hmm. And, and it becomes a repeating pattern and it, it almost becomes a factory at that point, mm -hmm. which some people probably Scale. will hate, but it is scalable. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's what's happening is we're at a point in now in the world where you things are changing so fast. And now we're getting into some of the psychology of it is people are having meltdowns because of the constant change. They can't handle the speed of change. And it, and it freaks them out. I mean, I can't tell That's you. That's an interesting point. Yeah. And so where was I going with this? The, the, well, we were talking oh, we about can't, scale. Yeah. We, which is where the constant learning comes in, the scaling and the constant learning, because you have to keep it going. And the only way you can make that happen with a small group in the learning field is to empower the people within the field. It's exhausting. To do the work. It people. is, it is exhausting because things are changing on top of each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're going to come back to this, I think, but I mean, the AI thing, the chat GPT mm -hmm. thing that only hit the market in beta in January. Well, they were and we're now at the moon. end of February Yeah, and it's already changing everything. So we're going to take a moment yeah. to acknowledge our sponsor, Transcend Network. Transcend Network helps early stage startup founders find product market fit through weekly experiments, receive fundraising support, and build a global founder investor network for edtech and the future of work technologies. The Intern Whisperer is affiliated with Employers for Change, and we thank Transcend Network for being a sponsor of our show. So we're back to the second half of our show, and we're going to be talking about what does the future of work look like? 2030, 2035, what do you think, Barry? Well, it's an interesting thing to think about because it sounds so futuristic, right? You wanna, right. You wanna say the Jetsons and you wanna say flying cars and- Or Star Wars. And, and Star Wars or any of that stuff. But the reality is, is it's 2023. Yeah. It's 2030 is only seven years away. It's not but even a decade away. They do have flying cars. They, they do, yes. Yeah. And I believe in California, they're having their first self-driving taxis. We have them here. I don't know if you know this, but over in uh, Avalon, they have, and in Lake Nona. Yes. Yes, they do. You're they right. They have self-driving little buses. Yes. So, you know, the future of work is here. This is, yeah. it, it's, it's really weird to say that because we've always been thinking about it being so far out, but it's, it's basically kind of here. And we talked about before the break, we talked about chat GPT. And for those that don't know, that is an AI driven text prompting type of, a, of an environment. We also have AI art creation and AI music and different things that are made with AI. Mm -hmm. And so when you ask me what work is going to be like seven years from now, I think that it's going to look similar. I think there's the knowledge work is going to remain. Um, I what think do you mean by knowledge work? People that solve problems. Okay. Not, not the physical labor, not the blue collar stuff, not the trades. It's, it's the people that sit at desks and solve problems and, you know, they work on computers. Are you saying academics also? Potentially. Okay. I, I do think how we learn is going to change. I think I what we learn is going to change. Yeah. You know, um, when you talk about AI, you're talking about, I don't ever have to like have any, I don't have to know anything. I, it, what I have to know is how to work in conjunction with that AI. 
right? I have to be able to prompt it properly. We were, we actually just had this conversation at work. We have a tool that's in our banking system. That's a reporting tool. And one of the challenges that the trainers have is they have to, excuse me, they have to solve when somebody says to them, Hey, I want a report that does X, Y, and Z. Well, what happens if you don't have to answer that question? What if you can ask the AI the question and it says, Oh, here's your, here's your query code. Just copy this in. Or you don't even have to go that far, right? You just ask it the question and it, and it does it all behind the scenes. So I think, I think what's going to happen is we're going to have to learn a new skill. And that skill is going to be how to work with prompting back and forth with AI. But to- what if it's wrong? What if people code it and it's the AI is picking up bad information? Because it's picking up good and bad information. So today, ChatGPT is only trained up to 2021. Mm-hmm. and it's got guardrails on it and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, but it is picking up well, weird explain stuff. Explain what you mean by guardrails for our listeners. It means that you can't take it too far off the rails. And I know that some people have, mm-hmm. like, I think there was a reporter that had a conversation with it for like 23, 24 hours and it really totally tripped it up. But all of the AI is doing is figuring out what is the next word supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And it's building it that way. So I think the AI is going to get smarter. I think we're going to figure out how to kind of program it better because we're only in version one. And that's part of the problem is we have to figure out where we are on the curve. Mm -hmm. You know, are we at the bottom? Are we at Napster or are we at the top and we're, we've got everything we're going to have. Right. I think, I think chat GPT is the Napster. And I, you know, I don't, for those that don't know what Napster is, Napster was a file sharing program that allowed you to like download songs and stuff off the internet back in the nineties. And Napster went out of business because it got sued to death. And, but now we have Spotify and it completely changed the way music is produced. Hmm. So I think that's, what's going to happen is the way that AI is going to change the way we do work. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the piece that people are kind of freaked out about, Mm -hmm. but I don't, I think there's going to be jobs that don't exist today. And this is the lifelong learning thing, Mm -hmm. not lifelong, sorry, long life learning, not Mm -hmm. lifelong, but it's, it's that how do you prepare today for jobs that don't exist today, but in five years will, mm-hmm. right? Look at what happened to me, right? I had, I had a runway. I had like 10 years to figure out my career path. When I started school, we barely had computers. We didn't even have Windows 95 mm-hmm. and training didn't, wasn't a thing. It wasn't until later that, that that happened. Now that change would be like a year and a half, two years right? The half-life on a skill is two to three years. You could go through college. And by the time you start college and end college, that skill is no longer valuable. Yeah. And that it, job may not be there. Exactly. It completely changes how we have to think about things. And that's, I think we're, we're not ready for as a society. I think we're, our current education, our current education system does not function for that kind no, of an environment. And so when you ask me about what is work going to look like, I think one of the things that work is going to do is it's, is this learning process is going to become part of your job mm-hmm. and it's going to be everybody's job. And we're going to have to figure out how companies become the universities again. And we I saw think... that, we saw that with the, the apprentices, right? The, the, yeah. the journeymen and the masters and that whole thing. I think that model might have to come back. Oh, it already is. The government is spending massive amounts of money to reinstate uh, a print or not reinstate to uh, implement 
programs that are geared around certainly apprenticeships, but in areas of STEM, mm -hmm. you know, and then also things that are um, two-year yeah, types but, of- Yeah, but mentorship is an interesting discussion. It is. You know, because typically we think of mentorship being the new kid comes in and the older person oh, mentors no. them. Peer in reverse, buddy. Yeah, the, that model of what mentorship is, is going to be different. And one of the things that we talked about at work is that we're going to have to pick people up from one job and reskill them or skill them up to another job. We might have to teach all of those, treat those people as new employees. They're which, going to become project workers. This potentially, is potentially yeah, yeah. like a gig economy kind of thing. Yeah. Everything, there will be less and less full-time jobs and it will be that companies are going to go, Oh, I only need this amount of people. And that's why we're seeing these massive amounts of layoffs because they're going, oh, we don't need that many people. We only need this so that- Well, and our company was one of them. Yeah. We cut 2% of our workforce. And that's small. Yeah. But still, it's something, right? Mm -hmm. And so then you're going, okay, well, where are all of these people that don't have jobs getting? Um, we're going to see more of that happening as companies want to be more lean and not have the overhead of, of, you know, benefits, if you will. Um, I saw a video not too long ago and I'm going to, I'll say this and it's, uh, it, it's not a trusted source, so I don't know, okay. but it was a YouTube video and they were talking about this gig economy. And they were saying that there, that if you were in the tech industry, you could potentially be a remote worker mm -hmm. and actually hold two jobs at two different companies. Yep. And neither company needs to know that the, you're working at the other company. Well, you sign a non- a confidentiality well, agreement. Well, but it depends on the type of company. Like I can't work in the financial industry. Sure. But I could work in some other industry. Education. Yeah. You know, so if I'm a software developer, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm going to work on two contracts mm -hmm. or something like that. And, but so that's kind of what you're talking about. We're a matrixed environment, you know, where we have leaders in our company and the leaders have team members, but those team members are borrowed out onto other teams and, and they are shared. You are very much on that same model. Mm -hmm. Yep. That is, that is what it's going to look like. So I've seen a lot of companies, like I said, laying people off. And so then, people, but yet we have record unemployment. We do because people are accustomed to full-time jobs. So how we become, how we report the amount of jobs that are out there is going to change too. Mm -hmm. It may not be full-time. It may not be part, it can be some of that. It can be part-time, but it's also going to be just like what we see people driving Uber or Lyft, right? Mm -hmm. They'll have a job, but they're also doing that. They pick and choose on the days if they want to work. Yeah. You know, it'll be that way. Um, coming back here, so hard to believe, Barry. But <laughs> best mentoring advice you want to share with our listeners? So I would say figure out who you are. Yeah. And what 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 you are and what drives you because if we go back to this idea of long life learning, mm -hmm. you might be in a, you might be in a working situation for 50 plus years. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? That means that you are going to have multiple careers. Yes. And that's happening already. Yeah. So the idea of having one or two careers is it's kind of going away. Yeah. It's antiquated. It, yeah. So understand that if you understand who you are, and you understand this T professional idea and the stalactites, figuring out what your T looks like mm -hmm. and what is transferable because the job that you might have 10 years from now, it doesn't exist today. No, you can't, 
you can't even guess what that's going to be. I have so, a guess. Okay. Here's one of my ideas because of chat GPT and, and improving this world of um, AI, I feel like there's going to be uh, fact checkers that are checking and going, okay, because I did this, mm -hmm. I tested it. Sure. And I went, all right, let's see if it can find multi multi-dimensional learning. I used an article with my name and then I used four other variables with the ampersand side. I broke it, mm. but I could see that when I gave it just two parameters, it could do it. When I gave it three, it could do it. When I gave it four, it could still do it. But when I gave it seven, it couldn't do it. So I feel like there's this place of people that are going to have to verify and say, yes, this is actually peer reviewed. It's going to have some type of um, way of actually cross-referencing that it has, you know, a real citation list. So the skill it. that's part of that would be discernment. Yes. And being able to understand research, research and, and discernment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we, we've seen that Problem over the last, solving. yeah, exactly. Yeah. We've seen it over the last, you know, five years. Yeah. So I like your, um, your tip of. And never put the book down. Yeah. And never put the book down. Yeah, definitely. So how can our listeners and our viewers, because people watch it on YouTube, but they will also listen to it. Um, how can they find you? So I have LinkedIn, like most of us do. So you can find me on LinkedIn. If we have that in five years. Yeah, we well, might not. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Um, I do have a YouTube channel. It's kind of a rudimentary channel, but you're welcome to go there. It's called Ruthlessly Relevant ID. Okay. So if you're in the training field and you're looking to, or you're looking to see what we do in the training field, it's designed for the entry level stuff. So there's some stuff there. And, uh, and I'll tell you, if you go there and you see it and you have some ideas about what it could do and could be, please send me a message. Cause I would love to know. All right. Well, that is wonderful. And I want to thank you so much. I had so much fun. Yeah. This so is sorry. Great. I sounded like a frog here, but that's all right. It's part of life, right? Yeah, it is. We roll with the punches. So thank you so much. And we hope our listeners enjoy this show. Thank you to our sponsor, Camp 5 Studios. Thank you to our production team, producer and editor, Josue Gonzalez, and music by Sophie Lloyd. Please visit Employers for Change at e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusive culture while skilling your people for the future of work. Thank you for supporting The Intern Whisperer by subscribing to us on our Podbean and our Employers for Change YouTube channel. You can always stream from your favorite podcast channel also.